Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. the Near and Queer to My Heart podcast. I'm your host, Amanda G. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been having such a great time doing this podcast, and this episode is going to be amazing. I'm excited to bring you DC Paul. DC is a local New Orleans actor, stand-up, storyteller, radio host, and so many other awesome things. I've known DC for years, and I learned so much from this interview, and I hope you will too. So let's get to it. Welcome, DC. Thank you, man. It's kind of weird. So DC and I, uh, we both do stand up around New Orleans, and we met at a time when we were both new to stand up, but mm-hmm. we didn't realize we were new to stand up. So we both were like trying to impart, I think, impart wisdom on each other, and we would go back and forth because we were both like kind of studying the theories of stand up and how that all works, and we'd go back and forth about you know how we saw it, and then later on we both realized we're newbies no, and we don't know what the <laughs> fuck we're doing. Though I actually feel like you. I don't know how I did as far as important wisdom on you, but you definitely like um, taught me the rule of three, the basic ass rule of three, you know, and just a bunch of the structure of comedy. I didn't know that you were as new as you were when we first met. So like, I don't know. I'm sure I came off super green, but you did not. Oh, good. I, I like to fake it. <laughs> yeah, you did not. <laughs> not in any way that my girlfriend will nope. have to hear about. <laughs> I was like, my brain already went there, so let's just <laughs> let's, let's just get that out of the way. The way DC performs stand up, and I guess we'll you know talk more about your your stand up life. But DC is more like a, a storyteller in his stand up, and mm-hmm. he you know it, it describes things in in so much detail, and that's what makes it funny because you can really picture the things that he's saying. Um, so then when he hits that punchline, it really hits him. And for me, I was like a minimalist. I'm like the the least amount of words possible, and we would go back and forth on that. And I think we're both right. Like at the end of the day, looking back, it's been a couple of years. I'm looking back, and I'm like, we're both right. Like mm-hmm. we both have our own way of doing things, and it's been successful for both of us. So that's yeah. been really cool. I do remember you telling me that uh, a lot of times my jokes and myself were too worthy, and I, I took that into consideration. Um, and I agree with you. Actually, it's very worthy. But after, like you said, after doing it for a few years, you kind of get, you fall into a groove, you see other people and the different approaches to it. You see that, uh, you know, worthy kind of storytelling works for some people. It's all about the delivery and approach, I guess, is one thing that we should have told each other early on. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm also, also, you were right. We want to get to know you a little better, DC. I mean, you've done the Greens Room Queer Mountain storytelling show. We've heard some stories from you. I've mm-hmm. heard stand-up from you for years. I've actually seen you in a play, uh, which was really cool. 
Uh, the football one. Oh, you did see that? You know that one, the Big Easy Award. Oh yeah. Yeah, that one. They got best play. It was. I cried. I cried my. Really? Yeah. <laughs> you were emotional. You grabbed me. It was. Uh, it was. It was really weird. I, I went. Um, my brother. I'm from Los Angeles. My brother was in town visiting, and he had um someone that he knew from years ago was in the play. I forgot. The name. Yeah, he was the the other main guy. <laughs> Ross, oh, yeah, he, he, he's a Los Angeles actor. Yeah, so my so my brother's like, hey, I'm in New Orleans. My friend's play happens to be in New Orleans. We have to go. And I get there and I see DC Paul. <laughs> I was like, I know a dude too. Oh man, that's cool. <laughs> like, You're not that cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> no man, that guy that played opposite me, Ross, uh, talented film actor. He's done movies. He's in LA most of the time. Um, and the one time he takes a break from film to do some theater. He wins a damn big easy award. Of course. Know? Yeah, he, but he, that dude killed that role, didn't he? Yeah. I thought he did really well. Yeah, so I wouldn't usually admit that I cried, but <laughs> but it was it was really good. I still haven't seen it, so I don't know what's so sad about it. Oh. <laughs> well, I won't spoil it for everyone. What, what's it called? Colossal. 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 Yes, that yeah. sounds familiar. You're from New Orleans? Yes, yes, ma'am. Born and raised here in New Orleans. I lived here up until Hurricane Katrina. Before Katrina, I had no plans on moving, but with the hurricane, I ended up moving to Texas. I transferred to Texas A&M, stayed there until 2008. And yeah, well, after 08, I got I got a job overseas, and I stayed overseas until 2012. And then I moved back to New Orleans in 2013. Uh, where overseas were you? I did three years in Afghanistan. I was between uh, Kabul, Herat, Bagram. Kabul, Herat, Bagram. And then um, sometimes I would take jobs in Dubai and in Kuwait, stuff like that. What were you? IT. Okay. Is this the first time hearing this? Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, I was like, I don't, what kind of jobs were you doing? You were being very <laughs> elusive, so I was like, wait a minute, should I ask? But like, oh, yeah, yeah, what I kind was, of jobs were you doing? I was doing? doing IT. At first, I was working, I was contracting for the Department of Defense after my first two years of contracting. I came home and moved to Maryland for about eight months, and then I went back out to Afghanistan and started contracting for NATO. So I did a year and three months of contracting for NATO um, before I moved back home to Chicago. Right. And what brought you back? Uh, man, the whole time I was overseas, so I, I was a spoken word poet um, and an actor before going overseas. And the whole time I was gone, I was always watching my social networks and feeling like I was missing out, excuse me, on so much, missing out on so much. You know, see people advancing their careers, having fun, performing. You know, going to concerts, just living regular life as a millennial. And um, I'm working in this war zone overseas and just feeling like I really I really want to get back to my craft. If it wasn't for like my urge to perform, I would have taken that job and made a career out of um, doing IT in other countries. But um, I missed I missed performing. Did you have, was there any social life there? Were there other folks, you know, oh, yeah, like you well, that were out? Or yeah, I mean. Karaoke um, bars? Mm-hmm. Like what? Yep, there was karaoke night. Well, so on the, the base that I worked on, there was a lot of social events, uh, karaoke night. I hosted uh, spoken words sometimes. I even did stand-up for the first time um, in Afghanistan. It wasn't funny at all, and I didn't. As I won't say it was foreshadowing, because I didn't think I was going to start doing stand-up afterwards. I just did it because, why not? You know, yeah. a bunch of Americans in Afghanistan trying to entertain each other. I, I lived in a safe house off the base and my company had uh, these drivers that were contracted to work for us. So I often would go and see uh, social life and nightlife in the city of Kabul, like with a bunch of Westerners, not all Americans, but just, uh, you know, some Europeans, some, you know, just different people from around the world. 
And I mean, I'm talking about disco bars in Kabul, Afghanistan, Mexican places, chicken spots, oh, pizza, hip hop bars, brothels, all types of yeah, It was Kabul, Afghanistan being the capital of their country. They cater to a lot of other cultures. Every culture's embassy is in Kabul. So there are restaurants and other businesses that cater to whatever a European or an American might want. And they do their best. They do their best. Yeah, because you know y'all have money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you're there to do IT work, and mm -hmm. you have and nothing but time on your hands. Mm -hmm. well, everybody that wouldn't have to doing IT now. Some people doing real ass jobs. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but um, um, the thing is, because the cultures are so pervasive, I feel like there would have been hip hop bars in Kabul, even if there weren't Americans out there working, and stuff like the the Mexican food restaurant. There were like actual locals who would patronize it because I felt like just that. That type of thing cross barriers sometimes, cross borders. Well, how was the Mexican food? The tacos are so basic. And then they don't do pork in um, in the whole country, so uh, they use lamb as a pork substitute and everything. So a lamb taco, not quite the same thing. And then the, the, the taco shell was more pita, you know, mm. than anything else. So, no, I mean, I would say that the uh, the Chinese food in Afghanistan was good, but the Mexican food, I think that's Okay. All right, so you go from Afghanistan to mm -hmm. Chicago. Yeah. What was in Chicago? I had uh, transferred to, I started taking classes for my MFA at uh, Columbia Arts College. Um, I was studying creative writing and trying to take some theater classes, not to get a, not a theater major, but just uh, just classes to just combine the public speaking. Because I was going to spoken word poetry all through college. I wasn't really like a, a comedian. So I went to Chicago 2012 to do that. And then I didn't, I only stayed in that school one semester. And I just stayed in the city trying to be a performer before coming home. And then you ended up back in New Orleans, mm -hmm. I assume, because we're sitting here yep. <laughs> in New Orleans. Yeah, um, it was my, my, my grandfather uh, passed when I was in Chicago. That's Bernice's husband. Okay. Um, and Bernice was living in that big home. Bernice is his grandmother slash ex-roommate. <laughs> <laughs> we were roomies. Depending on how you look at it and who you're talking to. <laughs> yeah, she lived in a big-ass home by herself. I, the city of Chicago was eating me up, so it was me and my dad decided I would come home and live with my grandmother, and I did that, and then that's kind of how I started doing comedy. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, I should just move in with my mom and get instant, yeah, instant, <laughs> instant comedy. Yeah, she she gave it to me, I had punchlines all over the place. Yeah, and I love the, uh, DC has a joke about all the activia in the fridge. <laughs> And all of her church lady friends. Yeah, and I should it's bring just... her back. I haven't told that joke. I stopped telling jokes about her. I thought I would retire all of my Bernie's jokes. I feel like it's been long enough in between me telling it that I could bring it back up like this new shit. Yeah, absolutely. And it's relatable. Mm -hmm. And for the people who, who don't know that I live alone now, I can still tell them I live with Bernice. They wouldn't know the difference. I lie on stage a lot, so shit. We <laughs> all kind of do. Uh, Hannibal Beerus has a special in Midway. Like, in one joke, he's talking about a roommate, and the next joke, he's talking about living by himself. And mm -hmm. he's like, yeah, I switched it up. Because yeah. it's like when you write the jokes, sometimes you're in one space, and then, you know, like I wrote some jokes about um, a, a girlfriend that I had that I broke up with, and now I'm with a new girlfriend. I just kind of conflate the two together mm -hmm. instead of explaining to the audience, like, hey, like, yeah. oh, this is actually this girlfriend over here, but, you know, so. It's much better to just, because they don't, if, even if they know the truth, if it's still funny, they'll laugh with you, and they'll they'll be able to pick out the parts of it that's true. But like, if they don't know, they don't know. Yeah, <laughs> they know. I always feel as long as it's like based on some sort of truth. Yep. Though sometimes that's straight up lies. Just make shit up. <laughs> Ain't gotta be based DC's on that. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I, I do agree that like the ones that are uh, rooted in some kind of truth, 
they're just better as far as connecting with the audience because you're telling a personal narrative. But sometimes, you know, some, some you know, comedy is so subjective. Some silly yeah. shit that never happened makes no sense. You just made it up. Um, it's, it's just funny. That's true. I uh, Actually, so I'm a cat lady, and I have a bunch of jokes about being a cat lady. And I was at a show a couple weeks ago and did my cat lady stuff, and I stepped outside with a friend, and this old lady came up to me who was a real cat lady and talked to me for 20 minutes about how much of a cat lady she is. And so I was like, <laughs> was okay, like, this got too real. Right, like, ma'am, this, this is a joke. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know what? I just learned a phrase today. Meta. Meta. You know what that means? Tell me. Oh, I mean, well, because I didn't know. I heard people use I, it I do, but, but now like, I'm, like, scared to well, say Well, no, it. no, man. I mean, shit. I, I thought you would have already, honestly. Yeah. It's almost like when a piece of art refers to itself. Not just about being, like, about real life, but, like, referring to writing a joke in a joke, you know, that type of thing. Um, I just realized, I learned that word today, and I realized how much comedians do that without even knowing the proper term for it and shit, you know? <laughs> yeah, cool. and I feel like a lot of people use the word meta in a bunch of different ways, and mm-hmm. some of them aren't the, the most is accurate. That, is that the same the same definition you, you had? Yeah, that was actually, okay. see, that was concise. I know we were talking about you being wordy. That was, like, the perfect amount of words to <laughs> describe that. So that was really great. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And actually... There was a lot of truth in what in that original um, advice you gave me, because yeah, I like I'm I know words, I use words, but like being careful about word choice is really good because it can shorten a sentence or punchline or just give people exactly what you want to say without boring them with like too many ums and uhs. You know what I mean? Yeah, and so, taking away from the punch instead of building up to the punch. Yeah, I think just a, maybe a, a mixture of our our two ideas, like be wordy but also choose your words wisely. You don't want to use too many unnecessary words. Yeah. You know, it's better than, that's, that's worse than using too many words. You end up being repetitive at a certain point, mm-hmm. and that loses an audience. Oh, yeah, it does. Especially if you're, you know, most of the shows we do are at bars for drunk people and high people mm-hmm. and just people who have been through shit all day and they just want something really quick. Right, and they don't necessarily want to listen to the full story. Yeah, see, yeah, yeah using, choosing your words wisely is like, um, what I took from your your advice about like consolidating. So you grew up in New Orleans, mm-hmm. and this is a question that I ask everybody, and it is multiple pieces of a question, so I'm just gonna throw it all out there, and you can pick it apart and answer however you choose. The, the questions are basically: When did you come out to yourself? When did you come out to other people? And when did you start coming out on stage? And there could be, you know, there's always different pieces because yeah, we yeah. all come out every day, essentially. And that is an, that's an ongoing thing for Greg, every day. Yeah. yeah, it's a, yeah, you, you gotta come out so many times. I guess to myself, so I, I, I am a, a member of a frat, a fraternity. I joined the college and it's a lifelong membership. And when I joined, so I'm, I'm fluid. You know, I, I have dated women, I have dated guys. In college, I think that, um, is when I got, my biggest burst of experimentation, you know, when it's first new to you, you do a little bit more of it than you normally would, I guess. So first time experiment in college, it was right before and then right after I joined my friend. And being a, a member of the fraternity makes you more of a public person on campus. People people know you for different things that, that you have to carry yourself um, a certain way to represent the organization. So I found myself a lot of times, after I, after I crossed and became a member of the Fred, found myself entertaining some female company, sometimes out of obligation. You know, not that there was a, a guy I wanted to be with instead, but just like, 
I'm just doing this right now because like I have to keep up the appearance that Alphas damn I shouldn't have said Alphas whatever don't edit it out that, uh, <laughs> that members, <laughs> members of this fraternity uphold a certain a certain image and it wasn't in my mind that image had a lot to do with your sexuality and how you carry yourself and your relationships with, with women in my mind at the time that's what it was so I felt like I needed to spend more time with women for the image and it really became too much like okay now it's like I got you know too many of these girls you know um, I'm doing t I'm overcompensating you know like I don't need to be with all these women you know I don't even like any of them yeah. like that much you know like sex is one thing but like the company there was one there was one I still love her love her company but for the most part it was stuff to keep up appearances and then um, so that was around 2006 2007 where I started like coming to terms with like okay what do I enjoy you know versus like what versus what am I doing yeah um, that's interesting because I always felt that obligation just in life you know really? the guy waiting in college I remember just one day being like oh, I haven't had a boyfriend in six months everyone's gonna think I'm gay and then I went out and like two weeks later started dating some guy mm -hmm. that I could have cared less about and you know I've, I've, ap I've apologized to every guy I've ever dated just I, to be like I'm so sorry I did that to you but it's just part of that process but it I surprises I, me that you went through that I, I well not you know yeah human, well you know right? you know me now you know me like out and proud like True. hosting you know gay shows and talking about being a lesbian on stage all the time mm -hmm. but you know I didn't come out till I was 23 so college for me was a very different time I make a joke on stage about how I wish I, you know, had come out earlier so I could have had more fun in, in that way. But I also needed, you know, for me, it wasn't the right time. Yeah. I was still dealing. I, I grew up in a very conservative environment um, in the suburbs in Los Angeles. We actually had a lot of Mormon people where I grew up. So there wasn't room for you to be gay. And mm -hmm. so I just thought, I always thought for the longest time that I just hadn't met the right person, that I'd focus on school that, you know, it, it was, I was uh, pickier than my friends. I just needed someone to like stimulate me intellectually <laughs> and physically. And I hadn't found that combination yet, mm -hmm. but I was still looking at men for that. There's guys that I became really like best friends with and we hang out all the time. And I'd be like, I should like this guy. He has all, check him off on paper. Everyone's telling me he's really good looking right. yeah. and there's nothing, there's that piece missing. Mm -hmm. And then he finally, I finally had a crush on a girl, like a hardcore crush and realized, oh, this is that piece. This is what all my friends have been talking about this whole time. Nice. And this is what I've been faking. Yeah, that, um, that probably felt very liberating. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the, the last guy I went, well, when I went out with him, um, our, my friend set us up on a date thinking like, oh, they'll, they'll be so great together. And um, after our first date, I came out to him and I was like, after oh. After your first date. Yeah, I was like, you're really cool. The same thing. Like, you're really cool. You're super smart. We, you're funny. We get along really well. It's amazing. But there's nothing there. And I was like, I, I think I'm gay. And he said to me, I think I'm trans. Um, and wow. so, yeah, now he's living as a, a female as he was uh, born and, yeah. and now identifies. That's pretty awesome. And, people, you know, people come into your life for a reason. I wonder if yeah. you, you, you may have been at the impetus for him to really say that out loud to a woman. Why was he on a date with you? What did his friends say about going on a date with you? Basically, my friend's roommate was really good friends with her, and mm -hmm, her. Um, so they both thought, thought we'd be really great together, and we were. Like we both needed each other at that time. Mm -hmm. Like we, you know, we went through these experiences together. We went to gay clubs, and you know, we we just got to have that safe space between us. 
so that was a really random cool thing that happened so real quick you you refer to this person as her even when you talk about things that happened before the, the transition is that that's the the proper thing to do i don't know the you know i don't know the proper the proper thing i think i think yes because mm-hmm. that's someone who was uh, born female, born female. Okay. Um, and identifies as female i, I think you. where it gets hard for me is i met this person at a time when they did identify as male uh-huh. at least you know, in any interaction that we've had, so it's hard. Like, yeah, true. Yeah, it is a it is a, a constant learning, I mean, learning process in twenty eighteen. Um, I think I like to think that I'm pretty well versed on like just uh, what's PC, especially when it comes to uh, things with women and trans people nowadays. But there's always something new to learn. That answer, I, I would say, too, depends on, you know, I would ask the person. Yeah, some, right, people, right, right. some people, that might be important for their identity to still have, like, yes, I lived outwardly mm-hmm. as a, you know, cisgendered but male I, or as a male, mm-hmm. yeah, and this that is part of who I was, mm-hmm. you know, like, I tried to live my life as a straight girl for a really long right. time, and so that is part of who I was and mm-hmm. who I am, you know, that all led to me today, so sure. I really, you know, I think it's the person. That's why I always, I always try to ask, and I respect whatever... The person says, and that just is the best policy. I think yep. people get scared of asking, and then they make assumptions, and then that's mm-hmm. where it all goes to shit. But you gotta ask, and these are conversations that kind of, especially if you have a friend, somebody that you're comfortable with having these conversations with, not a stranger, of course, but like, you know, it's a constant learning process. Me being a, millenn- a millennial, I wanna be up to date on, like, was, I wasn't always so PC. Mm-hmm. I wanna keep up with, like, what, what is most respectful uh, without intruding on my own, you know, my own personal so, But So you asked, like, when I came out to myself, yeah. uh, when I came out to my family, and then when I came out on the street, right? So I, I mentioned I, I went overseas, I came back home for a few months, like eight months, and then went back overseas. So in that time when I came back home, I lived in Maryland, I lived with my older brother. Because of the, the living situation, um, I felt like I should tell him. You know, like we were living together, I was paying like at least sixty percent of all the bills and everything. I felt like it was my home, yeah. so like you know, I wanted, I, and I had somebody at the time that I was dating that I was serious about. So I told him first, and it was cool. The majority of my coming out experiences have been unlike most other black male coming out experiences. You know, I'm gonna say this first before going with the story. Like a lot of um, my anxiety. And stuff with coming out, I think, is uh, growing up a black man in, in America and in New Orleans. I shouldn't say in New Orleans. I'm going to just say just growing up a black man. Because New Orleans is a very liberal town. Um, but, like, I always felt like uh, more people would have had a problem with it than actually did. You know, so um came up to my brother first. And it was cool. It was liberating. He was cool as hell. He had met the guy I was dating at the time. You know, like he would sit, the, the three of us would sit in our living room and watch RuPaul's Drag Race. Like my, <laughs> That's awesome. My, you don't know my older brother. He he is uh, rough. <laughs> <laughs> I say that. Not a nice guy. But he knows what purse first means. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, you know what I said, shit. What do you think to? So, like, so that was cool. But then, <laughs> I like, uh, before I was, I just signed a contract to go back overseas. So my mom came in town. Uh, to visit me and see me off, and like uh, three of us, my mom, my older brother, and myself, were out at a restaurant, and my brother, I said he's not a nice guy. <laughs> the energy changed in the restaurant. Like he became, he saw somebody that he knew, and he became 
you know, a little erratic and violent in the moment, and then things just started getting, energy started getting tossed around, and then at one point he and I were arguing, because he and I were arguing, and then he ended up outing me to my mother. Oh, shit. In the worst way, too. <laughs> you know, in, like, the worst way, like, um, like, not just out of me, but, like, making stuff up to make her, make her think that I'm just, like, um, just the worst gay out here, you know what I'm saying, like, you know, stuff that wasn't even true, but just, like, you know, because with me being out to Dwayne, I was still Dwayne's motor brother's name, I was still carrying myself in a way that was, like, he had to respect, you know, so when he outed me to her, he had to make it seem like, you know, like I was pretty much getting paid to have sex with, with random men, and I was like, that is the exact opposite of, yeah, of what I'm doing, guess. I'm dating one person, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, and this is the only person you've ever met, so what are you even talking about, you know, men coming in and out of my room, it was, it was, he was drinking, and he was angry, and he's not a nice person already, so. And that you had a restaurant while this was happening? Uh, started at a restaurant, I think maybe that part might have came out when we were driving. Okay, I was like, wow, and then there's home. this public factor to it. Well, I mean, the, the stuff at the restaurant was embarrassing enough without that happening, then the ride home, that part happened. My mother, you know, at first, just because of the way things were happening, sons were fighting and it was cursing and it became physical, so she just didn't take it well because of how it came up. But then eventually, she tried to act like, she was like, at events, like a few days later, she was like, and it's no big deal, I already knew that. And I was like, how'd you know? <laughs> and then she started naming stuff. And I was like, no, that's not, that's not even, this way before I had done anything. Like, what are you talking about? And then... That forced me to tell my dad, which was like the best thing that happened to me. You know, like my daddy actually already knew. He was like, I knew because did this and that and this and then this happened. So my daddy actually already knew. He was like, I was just waiting for you to tell me. And then his question was, what was it about me? Like, did I make it uncomfortable for you to tell me that? You know, like mm. what, what what was it about me that you couldn't say that to me years ago? So I had a conversation with my dad about like me saying it to myself first yeah. and then me saying it to my brother first and then the way it came out to my mother you know and then like now I'm telling him so it's you know he understood that it's not him and I thanked him for like just being how he was in that situation but like uh, then my daddy eventually met that same guy that I was dating coming out to my family aside from the the, the situation with my, my, my brother and my mom but coming out to my family my, my younger brother and everybody from my family that came out to it's just been like a breeze. You know, like they hear about it and then like they move on. So my like coming out to my immediate family experience I feel like um, was rare, you know, and I was anticipating it being something way more dramatic, people disowning me and stuff like that. Just you know, it's Yeah, we have to I mean, essentially hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Mm -hmm. And I know for me, like going through all those worst case scenarios where I was, you know, told my mom and I was willing at that point because I am like I have to do this for me that I have to be willing to also let this go if that's her decision mm -hmm. you know thankfully it wasn't but that's in the back of my head the whole time you know? yeah I, I wonder because I knew at the time that I was ready to tell my brother and I, I had friends but I knew that I wasn't ready to tell my parents and my younger brother and my friend brothers and like other people in my life but like the way that my older brother forced it to come out to my mother strengthened me, you know, and made it a very liberating experience and made it a lot easier for when I did come out on stage. When I, when I did first tell, like, my first personal, you know, narrative about, like, sexuality, once my mama and my daddy already know, like, I don't, I don't care, you know, who else, 
Honestly, I think I feel like you forced me to write my first, my first like personal <laughs> gay joke. Probably, yeah, because I was writing jokes, and a lot of my earliest stuff was like super misogynistic. I still tell some of those jokes, the ones that are more clever, <laughs> the ones that are more clever than, than just mean spirited. But like, uh, you forced me to tell a lot to start writing a lot more uh, jokes about personal stuff, like about Bernice. Yeah. You Aww. you forced the first Britney joke to come about. <laughs> so I was like, this is a natural, like, you could see a sitcom happening of that. Like, yeah. there's, you know, it's just this natural setup for every sort of punchline. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I, I didn't see it at the time, but you're right. Yeah. And they're not right. mean-spirited jokes at all. They're they're very, you know. The ones about just, yeah. Well, they're, they're more self-depreciating than mean-spirited. Yeah, or they're more just, like, generational. You're like, I'm a millennial, and I live with my grandmother, yeah. who's clearly not a millennial. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> you know, she and her church ladies get all dressed up for funerals and uh, birthdays and what, you know, whatever other celebrations the churches do. I wrote jokes, you know, my, my, my dad passed earlier this year, and my Christmas jokes that I wrote about my dad, actually, the jokes of, one of the jokes about how I don't know my dad, first the jokes about my dad, and then the, the kind of cleanup is, just kidding, I don't even know my daddy. And I was telling those jokes when my dad was alive, and I've told those jokes this Christmas, since my this first Christmas, since my dad has been gone, and I... At first, I had a conflict about, like, should I, is it appropriate to be, you know, telling yeah. a joke about how I don't know my dad, knowing damn well my dad was, like, 100%, 104% in my life. But then I resolved to myself that it was okay, because I was already lying about not knowing him when I did know him, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I felt like, and he liked those jokes, he thought that was funny. So now I wonder about um, the Bernice jokes. One thing I'm going to try to do, this may not even be good to say on record but i'm gonna try to do this record a 15 to 20 minute video of so i put all of the bernie's jokes into what could be a linear a linear set yeah almost like a story you know and like to record myself telling those jokes in that order at a bunch of different places even if i record a piece here and then pick up on, on the, the next part of the, the next bar yeah the next bar and then kind of spice it up with um a skit with me and, and an older actress playing Bernice. And and the way I, I do it, it's almost like a pilot, almost like Seinfeld would do like him on stage and then you see it in real life and then him on stage telling the same story in a different outfit in a different place. Because when Bernice, when Bernice passes, and it's going to happen, she's 85 now, 84, 85, I probably wouldn't still want to tell her a joke. You know, like I'm, I'm probably going to still tell my joke about my dad um, because like it, it was a lie the whole time. You know, yeah, but, and when he was alive, he heard them. And, um, you know, it and Bernice like he, has heard some of the some of the, the, the jokes about her. They halfway based on truth. A lot of more embellished, but like she's heard them. I talked about retiring those jokes. I'm trying to record that thing that I talked about. Um, hopefully, before she passes, so that she could see it, and and then I could properly retire those jokes. But like I've had that idea for over a year now. I've even talked to an an actress who. It's pretty oh, old. So you're, it's more than just an idea at this yeah, point. Yeah, well, I mean, I talked to her like last year, you know, and haven't done anything all 2017 about it. And I put all the Britney's jokes together, you know, and from the intro talking about her to the, the, the ending joke about uh, her titties, you know, the Britney's <laughs> yeah. joke. And then it would end with, with me coming home and her asking me, so how'd you do? You know, and I would just, like, Britney's your, your titty joke, it never, it never lands, <laughs> for one. You know, like the people would rather hear about analingus, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. I want to make that just for my my social media and stuff. 
I'm going to make that a 2018 goal because I've been talking about it since 2016. Yeah, you should. I mean, this podcast took me a year to really actually do it. It'd be like that sometimes. Yeah, and <laughs> I had the idea, and I even at multiple shows said, oh, I'm doing this podcast because I thought if I put it out in the universe, it would happen. Mm-hmm. So hopefully this is your putting it out in the universe. Yeah, yeah. But, actually, yeah, they don't edit it out. Yeah, because <laughs> I said it, it's going to be on record, and now I have to do it. And now we're going to sue you if you're not <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we don't have that capacity here. But no, I, I just, I think it's good, too, especially with all the Netflix specials that are happening and HBO like the stand-up's grown so much and I feel like people are exploring different ways to present stand-up mm-hmm. like Maria Bamford has her old baby special on Netflix I don't know if you've seen it but um, it starts off where she's performing for herself in front of the mirror and then she performs for her husband and then she performs for her parents and then at the end she's performing for a big crowd really? so she does like pieces of jokes in different environments like slowly kind of like being Maria Bamford Maria Bamford like the Pied Piper of comedy kind of thing and it's just it's a cool concept that like you know really cool she's concept. in a bowling alley at one point is it like actual live footage of her doing it in front of her, her husband or is it like pre-planned her husband's in on it Oh I'll, yeah, I'll no. watch it, yeah. Everyone's in on it. You know, there's a different. She did a special maybe five years ago where she she just performed for her parents in her living room, and that was a little weird. I love her so much, but I just felt like with her parents sitting there, like kind of waiting for it to be over, because mm-hmm. uh, I don't think they really get her humor. Um, that it wasn't as funny as it could have been. So I feel like she she realized that too and took that concept and then expanded that is a really it. Cool concept. And uh, Judah Freelander's kind of his special does a similar thing where he does. Uh, the same shows in different venues. What's that called? Uh, somebody wanted to watch something uh, with America. In uh, it. Somebody wanted to watch that for me with me. Um, but yeah, he's very funny. He's very mm. sharp. I like he's him good. on from, from Thirty Rock. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't seen him do like extended stand up, and that special is amazing. But he's me also either. playing around with the format too. He has like a handheld camera. I think it was like one or two cameras. He's usually in these creepy basements doing comedy. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's just different. You know, he could yeah. probably do it in a big venue with the camera set up nicely and the lights nice. And, yeah, but you know. have all these options. I'm happy I came into stand-up um, just in 2013, actually. It's, it's at a time when, like, there, there are more options. You know, like, I, I could do a handheld thing or my, my radio show, the comedy show, is uh, Facebook Live for the whole two hours. You know, they, I had to do have more options. And that Bernice thing, I think I'm calling it hashtag Bernice. It's, it's been done before, you know, skits and spliced in with, with stand-up. But it'd be something I want to do with while Bernice is still here. I think she would appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Tell us where we can find you, DC. You mentioned the misbelief. Oh, yeah. My, my radio show is uh, Saturday nights from 7 to 9 on WBOK, but it's also a podcast. It's available on iTunes. It's called The Misbelief. One word, The Misbelief, T-H-E-M-I-S-B-E-L-I-E-F, The Misbelief, um, available on Podbean, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram and where else you get your content. Um, and then you can check me out at whoisdcpaul.com, at whoisdcpaul on all social networks, whoisdcpaul on Facebook, just dcpaul on Facebook. It, it ain't maxed out yet, um, but whoisdcpaul, wherever. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, thank you so much, DC, and be looking for his video, hashtag Bernice2018. We're putting it out there. Yep, yep. Thank you, actually. Thank you for uh, asking me to be on this. Thanks for making me say that on record. You thank you for making me write like you made me write analingus, which, gets, which <laughs> I gets, get credit for analingus. Which gets mixed <laughs> But you made me start writing jokes about Bernice, and like you made me start studying comedy as an art form more so than just doing it. Well, thank you. I actually probably did it with a little selfish intent of having someone 
who I think is very smart and sharp and good at comedy to, to kind of go back and forth with. We need to get back to that. We, we said it already. We said that on Thanksgiving. Yeah. We did say that. Was I drinking? Oh, yeah. Lord. No. We were vomiting. We were what? Oh, we were, we were, we were delivering food. We were delivering food to the, to the needy. The not so needy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but no, I mean, I, I, I did appreciate you as a, um, as a comedy writing partner. You, you, you helped me grow a whole lot. Oh, and I would you. like to keep it up. Yeah, and uh, just to explain really quickly, the not so needy. We did. Um, they had a volunteer thing. I think it was the YMCA, where uh, and the comics volunteer every year, and it's really cool. We all get together and we deliver food to folks mm-hmm. um, for Thanksgiving. And there was one lady who we delivered it to, and she. Um, we called her when we got to her house, and she said, "Come to the side door." And we come to the side door, and we have the plate of food. And she takes one look at it and goes, "No thanks." Oh. <laughs> it was an interesting experience to yeah. wake up at eight o'clock on a Thanksgiving morning when it was freezing for. <laughs> Those extra plates actually did drop, like drop, gave them to homeless people, people who I, I thought looked needy. On my way home. I okay, had, good. I yeah, I was wondering I what to. happened to this. I, yeah. to. <laughs> I was like, please find a good home for this. I had these. to. I couldn't. I, I, yeah, no, I had to. I wanted to do a good thing that morning, and those old people ruined it for me. All right, well, happy birthday. Thank you, GC. Thank you, man. Hey, y'all. A much bigger audience than the last time I was here, and I just told all my personal business. The last time I was here, I talked about when y'all were here, I talked about the time that I did some light escorting. Um, it was very light. Very light. Like, like, he didn't touch me, I didn't touch him. It was so light. Like, he paid me in marijuana. Um, I guess I won't revisit that one. That's, a, that's pretty much the just of that one. So um, I um, I used to host a drag show at the House of Blues, and you gotta respect the art form of drag before I go any further, right? Like you have, you absolutely have to respect that, right? If not for the six-inch heels and the elaborate face of makeup and the sequin gown, at least for the ball tucking. I mean, the ball tucking. <laughs> Is an art form in and of itself. Sir, you ever try to touch your balls? You know what? I ain't gonna make an answer that in front of all these ladies. I'll tell you my personal story, alright? I tried to touch my balls one time when I was 16. I was on beta rest when I was 21. Old tucking is not something you just go home and do all willy-nilly, right? You gotta, you, gotta, you gotta prep for that shit, right? You gotta steam them for 45 minutes ahead of time so they're so soft and malleable. So, I used to host a drag show at the House of Blues, and um, I'm a gay man, and I was uh, I was hired by these two gay guys to uh, to host that show, and um, they they had a problem. I feel like they had a problem with uh, my heteronormative presence. I guess you know, like pretty much, like I wasn't gay enough. Except for the you know, and I know that sounds weird. It sounds weird. Like what does it even mean, right? But they would they would drop little hints, just little hints. Like one time, uh, before I was on stage, we were backstage, and uh, the producer of the show was like, uh, "DC, you mind if I see what, what you'll be wearing on stage this evening?" And I was like, "Well, I mean, this. I mean, it wasn't this? I promise you, it wasn't this." Uh, but it was like you know, jeans and a little t-shirt, maybe a sweater, or whatever. And I was like, "This is what I'm wearing." He looked me up and down with the gay face, and he was like, Do you happen to have a different cut of pants? 
I was like, what's, what's wrong with these pants, man? Like, what, what's wrong with them? And he was like, well, I just think that our target audience would really appreciate the different cuts of pants. <laughs> And I was like, listen, man, if you want to, I can turn these pants around and wear backwards so the dick holes right over my ass. But, like, all my pants pretty much fit like this, right? So uh, he got tired of um, dropping pants, and one day he just came out and said it. It was so rude. He was like, DC, I need you to come off gear for this audience. <laughs> I was so confused. I was like, what does that mean? Like, what does that even mean? He said, figure it out, and he sashayed away. <laughs> when a gay man says something to you in such shades of way, that's pretty much like notarizing a document, right? <laughs> it is official, consider yourself served, I will see you in court. Right? The judge will be like, well, did he sashay? Well, guilty, you know? So, I didn't know what to do in the moment. I was, I was afraid of losing that gig. I was like, damn, I gotta come off gayer for the audience. What do I do, right? So um, I went out on stage and um, after I swallowed the microphone, um, I did a breath drop, right? And then I jumped up and it was like, nah, nah, bitch! <laughs> With the ribs. <laughs> uh, so um, I got to keep my job. I had to buy a house and lose a new microphone. <laughs> Um, one of my guy friends is in the audience tonight. I, I threw the ball second joke at him because I knew he could take it. Uh, most of my, my, my guy friends, uh, cisgender, hetero guys, um, and they're cool. You know, like they, I think that uh, for them, having a gay friend is like helping them evolve as people. <laughs> like, it's like they're proud of themselves for letting me be myself. And I'm like, Thank you for letting me be myself, I guess. Like, but why is that a thing? Why is that special to you? But whatever, thanks. Thanks for that. So, like, we, we talk normally, um, like, about intimate things. We just talk openly. He talks about things with the girls, talk about things with the guys and I'm with or whatever. And we both realize that, like, um, just as gay men, I know I'm mostly for gay men, possibly for gay women as well, but for gay men, we have more colorful and creative euphemisms for what we're doing in the bedroom. We're just a more creative people. Yeah. <laughs> so, we were riding in my car one time. He, was, he just got a text message from some young lady. Um, and he got excited. I'm like, what's your over there grinning about? And he's looking at his phone and like, well, uh, I think I'd like to give me some dome. Like, no. Does that sound dry and un uncomfortable? Like, I pulled out my cell phone and said, you know what? I'm about to give me some head first, no helmet. Gotcha. And he was like, ooh, head first, no helmet. Now, well, uh, I think I'm finna give me some, uh, oh, what was the second one? Don't tell me. I think, oh, I think I'm finna give me some uh, trim, no clippers. Like, oh, you know, he's a barbershop right here. Talking about heterosex, right? Okay, give me some trimmel clippers. Well, you know what? I see your trimmel clippers and I raise you, me getting some stank on my hango. <laughs> Check. <laughs> he was like, ooh, stank on your hango. I think, well, uh, I'm about to give me some fire punane. 
This is 2017. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I see your punani, and I'm going to give me some dookie wee wee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was like, he was, he was, at first he was a little disgusted. He was a little disgusted. Until he realized that he could possibly get himself some dookie wee wee if he played his cards right. So he went, his, his expression went from disgust to curiosity. <laughs> so how can I, how can I possibly get me some of that, some of that dookie wee wee you were talking about? It's like, well, um, the first rule and probably the only rule I can give you is don't call it dookie wee wee. <laughs> don't refer to that. You, you, you won't get, you won't get anal sex or regular sex and probably won't even get a text back. <laughs> Doubtful. Okay. One quick story before I get out of here. I think I got time for one quick story. I um, I was uh, and and this is for the ladies in the house. So um, I was recently privy to a conversation between these uh, a bunch of the, the ladies in my life. Right, one of them is my tea Tina. Now my tea Tina, she's been smoking cigarettes for like twenty five years or so. So my tea Tina kind of got a voice like this. You know? So when I use this voice. It's my tea, Tina. And my other one is my cousin Yolanda. She's got a regular sweet girl's voice. She probably just smoked weed, you know. She was taking the canteen over femininity and whatnot. So we were at my tea, Tina's house, and my cousin was like, Hey, tea, Tina, do you happen to have a facial wipe? And tea, Tina was like, Well, I mean, I got wipes, but I don't know if they're facial wipes. You can still use it on face. And my cousin was like, Well, what, what, what kind of wipe do you have? I can use any old kind of wipe on my face. She was like, Joy, yes, yes, you can. It could be any kind of wipe. It could be a baby wipe. It could be a disinfectant wipe. Hell, it could be a vagina wipe. And you can still use it on your face. She was like, vagina wipe? I can't use no vagina wipe on my face. She was like, Joy, yes, you can, especially with that oily T-zone that you got. She was like, my T-zone is not that oily. She said, girl, yes it is, because your face has its own self-moisturizing mechanism. Like, you gotta take this vagina away. I'm sitting there, and I'm listening to this conversation, I'm like, ladies, pause. Yeah, like, y'all are using this word vagina wipe, like, I knew this was a real thing. Like, I didn't know that that was a thing. To me, a vagina wipe was like an insult to call all your friends when they get to a video game, right? And I'm like, fuck you guys, you a bunch of vagina wipes. I thought it was a vagina wipe, but I, I, I learned a vagina wipe is absolutely a real thing. I slept in my tea Tina's house, and um, I, I woke up the next morning and I had anything to clean my body with. So I went into her bedroom and I was like, tea Tina, let me see what's up with the vagina wipe. Let, let me see what they're hitting for us. So she gave me a handful of vagina wipes. I went into the bathroom. I took a horse bath in the sink with both vagina wipes. And I will say that um, when, I, when I was done, I don't know about my T-zone being old. I'm not sure where that is, honestly. But, but I will say that my face smells so refreshed. And my balls are pH balanced. Finally, finally, I'm going to Alright, you guys, I've been DC Paul, y'all. Give it up to Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to our sponsor, Sad Champagne. Ever bought a bottle of champagne in anticipation of a happy moment and then instead the opposite happened? 
What do you do when you don't want to feel the joy of popping the cork, but desperately need the alcohol to drown your sorrows? From the makers of Hillary Clinton's campaign for president comes sad champagne. Each cork pops to a different sad noise. We have several varieties, including the womp womp, the no, and the atom bomb for when shit just blows up in your face. Drown your sorrows the right way. Sad champagne. Thank you to our guest, DC Paul, for sharing his world with you. Special thanks to Jessa Fallon and Ryan Golub for your help editing and producing the show. And thank you to all our friends and supporters. You can catch Greetings from Queer Mountain, Queer Storytelling Show, live in New Orleans, Austin, and New York City. Check out our Facebook page for more information. Thank you! Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.